All right, I'm going to be honest. I haven't filled out the census yet. It's mostly because I'm a procrastinator. So I'm going to just go ahead and go over to www.mycensus2020.gov or I can call 844-330-2020 and just get it over with. I know it's important. They need the information to allocate resources and I think they should do it a little bit more equitably, but that's not the conversation for right now. I just want to get this done really so I can get people to leave me alone. They really want this stuff. They're going to be knocking at your door. They set up outside of stores. I just want to be able to tell them I did it already and not have to lie and feel any guilt about myself or feel walk with any shame. You know, I just want to live with honor and integrity as I tell people to leave me alone. Hello. Hey. This is Ergo. It is indeed. I'm Kiss. I'm Damon. And what we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of Chicago and beyond for the more equitable and creative. In this time of COVID-19, we have been on the line with folks helping us respond to and heal from this pandemic. That means healthcare workers, educators, organizers, elected officials, the people who are helping us respond to and figure out as a community, how do we take care of each other and keep each other safe? Uh, we have a very special guest on the line with us today. Zoran Mamdani's here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Don't drop the Kwame, baby. It's right there, middle name. <laughs> oh, you're you're going full you're going full oh, Kwame. Throw it in there. Hit me, Zoran Kwame Mamdani. You know what it is. <laughs> Zoran Kwame Mamdani's here. You happy? Yeah, I'm happy. I feel like your economic class has gone up in this pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> That's not untrue, to be honest. <laughs> I got out my of live event production at exactly the right time. <laughs> my man has a big enough closet to do a podcast. <laughs> yes, right. Button downs. Got an aperitif. You know? Hey, you want to you wanna record in the evening? I'm giving you evening, Daniel. <laughs> That's what you get. That's ED, baby. The other thing is, I am well aware that there's a chance that half of this is the two of you clowning me, and I'm very comfortable with that. I just want you to know that there is space for that as well. So for context, just so y'all know, uh, Zoran is one of my high school best friends, and that's not the main reason he's on, but it is like 30%. But but Zoran, why don't you, uh, just real quick, before we ask the question we always start with, why don't you just let folks know like what right now you're doing? Like running, what, what, what? Oh, in this moment, yeah, yeah, in the logic, okay. Um, I am right now a candidate for New York State Assembly here in Northwest Queens in Astoria. I am running um, in an election that is on June 23rd, less than five weeks away. And I'm going head to head with a 10-year incumbent who has never been primaried before. And I'm also fasting during Ramadan. (laughs) And I have yet to have my dinner. And I'm about to have that after this after this conversation. So that that kind of gives a small indication. But the question that we start every episode with is in this time and as specific as you want that time to be, uh, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? Yeah, I love that intro. I remember that question. It's a great one. Um, the world is treating me, I mean, generally well, right? It's all relative. Things are things are generally quite good for me. Um, but. It is a wild experience to run for office. 
it is an isolating experience in a lonely way. It's like simultaneously opposite things, right? It's, it's at one end an extremely lonely experience. On the other end, you're every day building community with people that you didn't know prior. Um, so you're, you're balancing those two emotions. And then to have this pandemic, you know, layered on top of that, and then Ramadan layered on top of the pandemic, um, it's like the sense of isolation is is also higher. And yet I'm also doing something I've never done before, right? I'm coordinating a mutual aid initiative where we have fed more than 10,000, distributed more than 10,000 meals across our neighborhood. And that is a building of community that I have never done before at that kind of scale. So I'd say the world is generally treating me well. I'm treating the world well, but there are these moments of uh, being absolutely overwhelmed and at times being intimidated as well. Mm. You, you mentioned kind of the, um, the the scaling up of that food distribution. I don't think that in general people think of that as central to a political campaign. We'll, we'll, we'll go back before pandemic and where all this work came from. Um, but specifically around that or any of the other ways that you and your campaign have adapted, what was that kind of reconfiguration process like as the world, whether even if we don't know all the ways has just like changed, <laughs> like the circumstances have just changed drastically from, from campaign to mutual aid. Yeah. Yeah. Look, the first few weeks were terrifying. Like there was no clear understanding as to what was going to happen. We had just put down $12,000 for renting an office space on Steinway, which is like the main thoroughfare um, in the story, one of the main ones. We put down $12,000 to pay for an office space for about four and a half months. You use it for about two weeks and then, you know, it's locked up. And it's yeah. like, it's, we got this for the size, you know? Um so initially, that was a really tough moment of kind of recalibrating um, both how do we run this campaign and how do we continue to be useful to people, you know, because you want to engage with the world politically in a way that is relevant to people's lives. This isn't a rhetorical battle or one about concepts and hypotheticals. We're fighting for people's lives mm. and and their right to continue to live and their right to thrive. You know, I really credit my campaign manager's dear friend of mine, Jenna Goldsable, who really took it upon herself to coordinate our campaign with a new mutual aid initiative called Astoria Mutual Aid. So we became a founding member of that initiative, that collective. And about, you know, two weeks after the pandemic hit, shutdown happened. So not actually, those are not the same things. Pandemic hit, then two weeks after the shutdown happened, um, <laughs> We we started to do phone banking again, and we had every conversation begin with, you know, my name is Zahran. I'm calling about my campaign for assembly. But before I talk to you about that, I'd like to let you know that we've partnered with a local group in the neighborhood that is providing groceries and medication for people who cannot leave their homes. Is there anything that you need today? Right. So we start every conversation with mutual aid. That's something we've continued up until now. We've done more than 40,000 calls with mutual aid in that conversation each and every time. Mm. As we did that, and we started to become a source of about a fourth of all of the requests that are being received by Astoria Mutual Aid. I think it's now more than north of 100 have asked us for help with groceries and help with medicine. And what's so, it's a lovely thing to be able to meet people's needs, but it's heartbreaking because you're calling people who if you hadn't called them, how would they have found out about this? Because so many of them are isolated from the typical ways of communication. And so seeing that, seeing what we're able to do, then with the onset of Ramadan, we connected with a woman named Afia Chaudhary who lives in Long Island City who wanted to fundraise for food distribution for the month and needed partnership to do so. And so we became 
the partner of that endeavor and have handled all kind of distribution, purchase coordination, logistics, all this stuff, and have, you know, as of by the end of this Sunday, we will have delivered 12,750 hot meals across the neighborhood. We're trying to meet people's immediate needs, but we're not trying to do charity. We're trying to take that opportunity to remind people of the power that they have in and of themselves to ensure that they can have their long-term needs met by the state. Because too often these kinds of things begin, the state sees the success of them, and then the state relinquishes its responsibility to those things. Because like, oh, they're already doing 12,000 halal meals. Like, we don't need to do halal meals because they got that covered, right? There'll be a 501c3 next week. Exactly. And it's like, and and I've... like I've faced pressure to make a 501c3. And the whole thing that we're trying to say is like, one, the reason we can do this so cost effectively and without any red tape is because we are just simply a group of individuals brought together by a campaign that is now a mutual aid wing. And two, becoming a 501c3, like... Sucks. Yeah, it sucks, (laughs) right? But our whole political analysis is that almost everything which is done under the C3 banner <laughs> should be done under the state. Right. Whatever C3s are necessary are really just state functions that have been abdicated. Right. I mean, my political belief is anything that is necessary for a dignified life should be provided by the state. Mm. Man, I'm, <clears throat> I'm really appreciating hearing from you, uh, not only because you're Daniel's boy, uh, <laughs> but also, I, I, you know, Almost with the day, I, I'm becoming more and more cynical and critical of electoral politics as an anti-democratic structure. Uh, and so I'm refreshed <laughs> to hear um, these very obvious to me examples of why that arena is still valuable and valid of like, oh, yeah, that makes common perfect sense. Um, this is what it should be. This is what it should be also outside of a viral pandemic. Uh, but I imagine if it makes a lot of sense to me and you alluded to it around the 501c3 conversation that people disagree with it. Right. <laughs> like if it makes common <laughs> sense, there must be some pressure. So. Talk to me. Has there been any pushback from like established electoral type folks who want to be helpful advisors or just think they are authorities who are saying like, this is not how this is supposed to be going. You should be doing this. This is unwise or inappropriate or, hey, this thing that's helping people stop it. Like, are you getting any of that? So interestingly enough, like the pushback was actually from somebody who wanted to donate, (laughs) but they wanted to donate and have it be tax deductible. Uh, mm. And they put me on the line with their account. Their account was like, look, 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 look. Let me, let me understand this. It's like, let me understand this. What you're doing is no different than if I go outside and give money to a homeless person. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, because I'm doing something good, but I can't write it off. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's mutual aid. And he's like, how are you going to protect yourself from getting sued? You know, we live in a litigious, litigious, I don't even fucking know the word. Litigious? Litigious? He was like, we live in a litigious society. You're not protected from from anybody who could be. And I was just like, you know what? I didn't think about that. I'm a little bit more scared, but I'm also very confident in the fact that the work we are doing is not in the scope of people who are looking to sue people. These are people who don't even know where they could find a lawyer if they wanted to sue someone. Right? And, they have, and they have needs. That's the primary exactly. thing. Exactly. Like and it's like, I don't have time to try and set up a bureaucracy. And even if we can do it expeditiously, I don't... The whole point of this <laughs> is that I don't want to take this responsibility away from the state. 
Right. Um, so you, you sometimes face pressure from places that you might not expect. In terms of the response from elected officials, I think it's more just like, you know, like, I didn't even know this was in the ball game, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because the person I'm running against, right, she sends many, many mailers. So on her mailers, it's like secured $25,000 for small business. It's like you don't know where exactly where the money went. You don't know like what the small, which small businesses. And then we're out here like we raised like 53K and put all that money into food that went to people in the neighborhood. <laughs> right? And it's just like you could do this. Yeah. Right. Obviously, this is being done without the arm of the state. And so it might even be simpler to do it outside of it. But it's like we can provide direct service through the state because their whole modus operandi is like, let me show up to an existing mutual aid initiative, be there for a couple photos. Then that initiative will tag me on Instagram, be like, thanks so much for coming out and bagging it with us, you know, (laughs) versus ours is like we set up a whole thing that now exists to feed people. Yeah. And I think it just speaks to like, what kind of person do you want? when shit is hitting the fan that's the point we're trying to really say is like people are dying right now right like more than twenty thousand new yorkers have have been killed from COVID 19 Mm. and it did not need to be that way it was not predestined or faded you mentioned very briefly the difference between chicago and new york and i think you alluded to like how much more packed we are here in new york and it is it's true like we're very dense city but too many people have been trying to write off what has happened because of the structural realities of this city in terms of like, oh, we're densely packed with this, we're that. You compare us to places like Hong Kong, like Seoul, you know, it's like they're packed, (laughs) right? Like we read articles about hotels over there where you like slide in to a bed and that's your room, right? Like they're not reading articles about that over here. Right, it's it's right. like, and so for them people to be like, Oh, you know, there's nothing we could have done. It's like, no, like there's analysis after analysis of how we lost so much time because our elected officials over here were in a dick measuring contest between the mayor and the governor, where if one says one thing, the other one's like, Oh no, I'm not going to touch that. I mean, we could do a whole, that, that seems like an alternate world podcast I'd love to do. It's just like a blow-by-blow account of the pettiness between de Blasio and Cuomo. It's like disgusting and silly. But one of the things that I think both Damon and I have seen in our work doing movement work is that as people who come in with a certain amount of like theory and ideas about how things uh, could be, and we're working toward bringing those imagined worlds to reality... Then sometimes, like what you're describing, you find yourself creating a little like microcosm of that thing in real time, which can be both really exciting and also really show like the limitations of either the theory or just where we are right now. So in in this pivot Pivot. and in this process of building this mutual aid infrastructure, what has been reinforced in your like political platform and what has been maybe challenged or complicated? Well, I think what what this has reinforced is how desperately we need to reorient our state. And I don't just mean like New York State, but also like the state government, because it's clear that so many people's needs are not being met. Why is it that our campaign is the difference between all of these people being hungry and all of these people getting a meal? Like it should not be this way. It should not be a decision that I can make. Especially without before you're elected. Um, (laughs) Right. It's just completely wrong. I think that what it has made me reconsider, and I wouldn't say 
reconsider as much as more just like really hammered home is that so much of politicians' effectiveness is their ability to bring home the bacon, or in my case, bring home the beef. You know yeah. what it is. Let's go <laughs> Ramadan. Um, and in the New York State Assembly, the way you bring home that money is that you are a part of the speaker's crew, right? You are seen as a loyal member of the majority leader um, within the assembly. And we are running explicitly to challenge the power, not simply of Republicans, but of institutional and establishment Democrats. So there is no question, if and when I win, then I go up to Albany, I'm not going to be getting any kind of discretionary funding of serious nature that is comparable to what the current incumbent is getting. Right, Because so much of the funding that's going to the current incumbent is to shore her up right. from my challenge, right. from our challenge. How do you explain that to people where it's like you can have someone who will advocate for the world that you truly deserve, but in the short term, you won't get as much money coming into the things that you see in the neighborhood because that's how politicians show favor. And we're challenging those politicians as well. I mean, so, so that is that is a tough thing because right now people are so excited by what we're able to do. And knowing that I will not be able to do that through the state is tough. But then this also shows an opportunity whereby we can continue to do this, but we'll have to do it outside of the state, which is tough to, to basically be a socialist and have to rely on the accumulation of capital outside of the state to provide for the short-term needs beyond, you know, what the state mm. will already agree to. What I've learned is also um, the state as it stands, even with desire, does not have the logics or the, the, the framework to effectively just like meet human and communal needs. And so uh, one thing that's, exci- there's many things that's exciting. I'm going to say a few of them right Damon's now. Damon's an excitable motherfucker. That's exciting. <laughs> I am. I'm excited. Uh, you know, you know, so one thing that's exciting is being able to then create the structure without the tainted hand of particularly the Democratic Party, which is really what I want to get into. Uh, like, you, you know, you've tickled my fancy because uh, outside of global cataclysmic crisis, I think, period, like, I, you know, I'm really for internal critique of the democratic establishment or if we want to use left leaning, even though I'm trying to like break out of this like left right binary, but, you know, left leaning critiques of the Democratic Party. And I feel like at the federal level, even from progressive or radical facing, can- I do not see that. I do not see the internal accountability that like makes me really skeptical. And so I hear you saying you're for- forefronting that. What does that look like? We need to learn that lesson. We need to figure out how to articulate that more accurately. I can get really upset and just piss my grandma off uh, talking about Joe Biden or whatever. <laughs> so like how has articulating in like very real terms, accounting for people's like day-to-day sensitivities of naming that the Democratic Party are Republican accomplices in the harm that we are talking about? How, how is that voicing been going for you? Well, you know, I think it's a different conversation with each person because lucky for me, the Democratic Party has failed us in a whole host of ways. So I don't have to have the same reason each time. Right? <laughs> if, if, if I talk to a South Asian voter, I can bring up the fact that if elected, I would be the first South Asian elected official at any level in New York City history. Right. And I bring that up in reference to this question because that is an indictment of the Democratic Party, which is basically this is by and large a one party city that has never 
taken even one South Asian to be like, this, this, this going to be our person. They right? didn't even bother tokenizing. That's the thing. It's like what blows my mind is there are so many conservative <laughs> South Asians. There are so many centrist yeah. South Asians. You could have picked one person to give institutional backing to so that me, a socialist, would not have this talking point. <laughs> Like, why did you allow me to have this talking point? Because now I get to have this talking point with the conservative uncle. I get to tell him, look, you and me, we disagree on a lot of things, but we look exactly the same. And because of that, we have never had a shot in this city politically. Why did they allow us to do that? It's hubris, I guess. I mean, it's hubris, but it's and it's just like mind blowing to me. It's like you think about how many and it's, you know, it's all the different it's the Republican Party, but. I'm as as Damon, as you said, I'm more interested in the Democratic Party, but right? I'm more interested in what we have more ability to extract accountability from, which is the Democratic Party. I think that, you know, if I'm talking to a Muslim voter, I can be like, look, I would be only the second Muslim to ever serve in the New York State Assembly. Right. I am running in Astoria where we've never had a person of color represent this district. I have an office on Steinway, which is the street where Mike Bloomberg's NYPD demographics unit went up and down surveilling Muslims on the basis of our faith, it's not very hard for me to make the connection between our history-making potential and the ways in which we've been indicted on the basis of who we are. Then in addition, you know, there's a universal message, right, which is that I'm a foreclosure prevention housing counselor. I work with low to moderate income homeowners across Queens, many of whom are immigrants who are facing the reality of losing their homes. I advocate on their behalf in non-legal proceedings with big banks and servicers. The Queens County Democratic Party, which is, you know, the Democratic Party in, this, in the entirety of this borough, is de facto run by three lawyers, guys named Sweeney, Reich, and Bowles. They live on Long Island. They don't even live in Queens. These three guys, I bring them up because they made hundreds of thousands of dollars prosecuting Queens homeowners for foreclosure on behalf of the very big banks and servicers hmm. that I fight against. And so when I talk to people about the ways in which this party has left people behind, I make very clear that we're fighting against an institution that has extracted wealth from working class people as the means of its attainment of power. And it's not working for us. That's the way in which I have the conversation. There are obviously many other ways, um, but but those are kind of like the quickest answers I would say to, to how to point out to people why they have been failed. So I think, you know, we're, we're so place-based and obviously the work you're doing is like truly like street by street, and you mentioned Steinway. For for those who are based here in Chicago and are listening, I think it might be useful to kind of describe Astoria and who's there a little bit, um, because it's a community that is remarkable, and there isn't really an analog here. So who makes up Astoria, and what do you love about it? Astoria is a fascinating and a fantastic place. Astoria, let me start off, let me get, let me start off with some early history out here. <laughs> Because, you know, I see you sipping the aperitif. I'm feeling, I'm, I'm feeling like, let me hit that 1800s right now. Right? Astoria is named after John Jacob Astor, who at the time of naming was considered to be the wealthiest man in America. And the people in this neighborhood named our neighborhood after him in the hopes that doing so would lead to a contribution <laughs> from John Jacob Astor to the neighborhood. <laughs> After the naming was done, they went over and told John Jacob Astor, like, yo, we named it. Bro. We named it for you. And he was like, I'm going to tell y'all what I told my fucking brother who named 
Astoria, Oregon after me, would you get the fuck out of my face? Right? I'm not giving you... He gave them like $500, right? Which was a little bit more back then, but still, they were, you know, it wasn't what was expected. It was like a token sum. That's not a, that's not naming rights money, you know? That's not naming rights. Like, that, that, yeah, that's exactly. not City Field, you know? Um, and I bring that up because the story of this neighborhood is in many ways the story of how you cannot trust global capital. Right, We were named on a premise which was not honored because there was a false and inaccurate expectation of some kind of fair tax. You know, Astoria in many ways has been kind of an immigrant landing ground um, in in Northwest Queens, where many people know it for um, Steinway Street, which is named after the Steinway family who are known for Steinway Pianos. The factory, the Steinway Piano Factory is in the north of Astoria. And the Steinway family were a German socialist family that came to Astoria and instituted basically what would be considered to be a company town without the typical restrictions that company towns had. So typically company towns, it was like restricted to employees and you know owners and so on and so forth versus the Steinway company town, which was open to anyone who wanted to come live here. And because they were socialists, the standards of living were much higher than what was being offered on market rate in terms of the sewage, in terms of the, the ways in which the buildings were built. They even had a tram that went up and down. And it was such a successful tram that other neighborhoods came to pitch the Steinway family on building tram systems and like flushing. Man, we don't even talk about trams. Trams were the shit. Streetcars, trolleys. You know I once <laughs> learned that in New York, this one company got the rights to build the entire city's like streetcar system. And they spent, you know, 10 years building it, millions equivalent of dollars. And then like five years after they finished it, they invented the subway. And so they just, just <laughs> another company got the contract to just tear up all the streetcars and build the subway. Yeah, Y'all crazy seriously. for this one. <laughs> um, but shout out to the streetcar. I'm a, I'm a fan. Shout out yeah. to the streetcar, man. Um, so that is a long way of saying that socialism has its roots in the history of this neighborhood. But in the more modern history, you know, Astoria is associated with being a place that a lot of Greek immigrants, a lot of Italian immigrants um, came to. And I think that but what I push back against that is it oftentimes it leaves out a massive Muslim and South Asian population, right? It's hard to get the official numbers of that because the census is useless in that capacity, given that it counts Arabs as white. Um, so it's very hard <laughs> to know crazy. what the actual size of it is. It is wild as hell. Yeah, we're just gonna we're just gonna do this. Like you're not gonna get the benefits, but you're gonna get the costs. Um, so the closest way of understanding it is that, you know, there I did a surname analysis of all the voters in the district, and there are 4,455 Muslim voters in this district alone. That kind of points to how large and thriving this community is. And it's not a new community. So I get asked by reporters, like, are you running because of the changing demographics and the Muslim community? I was like, yo, Muslims been here, right? Steinway might have been associated with the piano when it first began, but Steinway has for now at least a couple of decades been associated with hookah. So let's, let's the, be clear. The, the hookah situation on Steinway is strong. It's hookah gang. It is hookah out the wazoo. Steinway is where you go to be halal and be haram. <laughs> and I think that it's so much of this campaign is also about reconfiguring the popular understanding of the neighborhood and ensuring that it actually encapsulates everyone who's here mm. because so many of us have been cut out of that understanding. And now a lot of, 
you know, journalists and any kind of write-up of a story, I will describe it as like an incredible immigrant neighborhood with a strong Greek presence. And now a lot of young white gentrifiers. And there's like no mention of like little Egypt and the amount of Moroccans and like Bangladeshis on 36th Avenue. It's like, this is a truly multicultural neighborhood, but only certain aspects have been recognized in both the media analysis, but also in the political fabric. So you use the G word, which I want to bring up in the context of your campaign and just in the context of DSA-backed campaigns in general. Oh, we talk about gentrification. So, you know, one of the things that I think gets interpreted incorrectly a lot is, you know, when you look at where more uh, radical or at minimum progressive candidates tend to do better, it tends to be especially in outer boroughs and in neighborhoods here in, in, in gentrifying neighborhoods, right? Where there is an influx of white people who have some money and might have a certain lens on the world. Um, and so I'm curious for you, how are you thinking about that influx, the impact that it has on your campaign? Um, and then also, like, what are some of the myths around the conflation of hipsters and socialists? <laughs> There's a flip side of an analysis that radical candidates run and do well in gentrifying areas because the analysis presupposes that it's the gentrifiers who are voting for them by and large. <laughs> but if the platform of the candidates is that shit is getting real and that there is a housing crisis, then <laughs> people who are being pushed out of the neighborhood or have seen their friends and family be pushed out are also more receptive to it. Mm. We run a campaign that makes clear that the villain here is not the new tenant. The villain here is financial capital that created the incentives for only certain kinds of tenants to move in and certain kinds of tenants to move out. That's what's really important that gets erased in this conversation where it's just like, oh, it's just young white gentrifiers, yeah. like young white gentrifiers. It's like our whole campaign is built on the idea of recognizing and listening to the voices that have been here for decades but have never been heard. Mm. And obviously, there are going to be people who are sympathetic to this in addition to those. You know, there is a very progressive electorate here in Astoria. You know, it's also when we go back to like, why are certain people more receptive than people who are coming, like, considered to be gentrifiers? I think it's also that, like, just because you can pay a certain amount of money doesn't mean that you think it's right. <laughs> right? Like, I'm paying $2,000 a month for a one bedroom apartment right now. I do not think that that is right. But the right. fact that I can pay it means that these landlords get incentivized for raising the rents, right? And I think that you <laughs> have to basically craft an understanding of the world that doesn't lay blame on individual actors who are less so of factors in the creation of the situation, right? Because we oftentimes, when you talk about housing, it's like putting small landlord versus tenant up against each other. And you never talk about the large-scale corporate landlord. You never talk about that one in four homes sold in Astoria is sold to an unnamed limited liability corporation. <laughs> That's right? crazy. You don't talk about the fact that we're really in this situation because of large-scale capital. Right? It's not George Andropoulos who owns one home and is a two-family and he rents out the second unit to pay for the mortgage. That's not why Astoria has gentrified. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, what you're saying, this is actually something I try to, you know, raise often is um, I think we're using the language incorrectly, right? Like to 
to call privileged consumers gentrifiers is somewhat incorrect. The gentrifiers are the developers and the elected officials that systematically raise prices. Gentrification is the process of systematic price change, uh, and consumers don't have the power to do that. And so it, even though folks may be culturally uh, problematic or, or may come in and change the political economy of a space without an awareness in a way that they are not accountable to, then that needs to be named. And white privilege, you know, we could throw darts at that board all day. Like we, we got plenty of those. That's, that's general. <laughs> that's easy. Um, but I do think it is important to continue to make that distinction uh, because there is so much solidarity that, that can come from the effect. Um, and so, yeah, right. Like, again, it's very interesting to have this conversation out of place because when I think of renting, I think of like New York as like the, 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 the citadel or the, the the evil like place of like rent at its worst form. And, you know, that's something here in Chicago, we are experiencing black displacement in really high levels um, and are trying to get to like, yeah, we need affordable housing. Yeah. We need to you know address market rates, but also, you know, your analysis allows for the framework of actually questioning the notion of rent itself and the, the position of capital in structures around systems of housing and shelter. Um, and so, that's what's been really interesting about the pandemic is we can say the shit that feels off the wall or feels intangible, uh, but it's super duper real right now. So how is housing and displacement or the fear around displacement changed in the last six weeks to two months? Or is just your audience more receptive? I mean, I think there's a more receptive audience for sure, but I think that it's because the scale is just off the charts. Right before this pandemic, 24% of tenants mm. in Astoria were spending half their income on their rent. I think it's about 48%, damn near 50, were spending 30% of their income on their rent. And 30% is considered to be rent burden. Right. So 30% in New York is like a fucking gift. But to think that that's prior to the pandemic, who knows what it's at right now? Yeah. I've had so many conversations where people are asking, what am I going to do? On the first of the next month, how am I going to pay this? And right, Governor Cuomo has instituted an eviction moratorium here in New York State, but he thinks that that means he's taking care of the issue of renters. If there's a moratorium, but rent is still demanded, it means that when the moratorium is over, the landlord is going to demand all that back pay. And if you can't pay the rent because you lost your job, tell me one situation where a person loses their job. And then it gets a new job. And then that new job pays them for all the time they didn't have a job, right? There's just no way you're going to be ready for that moratorium's expiration. And he has since, quote unquote, extended the moratorium through the summer. But this extension now creates a whole set of terms and conditions that renters have to meet. Mm. It's only extended for someone who can prove that they lost income due to COVID-19. It's only, you know, it's like when you put the burden of proof on the tenant, you are, in effect, taking a whole set of this group and just damning them to eviction. Not to mention all the folks who literally just don't have documentation of their work. Exactly. <laughs> Which in an immigrant neighborhood is, I would imagine, a huge percentage. Yeah. I mean, it's just like this moratorium, even if it was a well-executed one and was truly an extended one without terms and conditions, would still be insufficient. We need to cancel rent. We need to cancel mortgages. We need to cancel utilities. Quick, quick political education question. I'm sorry. I assume it's like state house. I don't know what the New York Assembly actually is. We're only 40 <laughs> minutes in. That's a good question for this point. 
Oh yeah. So so basically, New York is mirrored on like the federal structure, right? It's like a mirror image where you have the executive, you have the judicial, and then the legislative is broken up into two branches. That's what I was you have yeah, the yeah. state senate, you have the state assembly, which is basically the state house, as you said. And it's comprised of about 150 assembly people, each one representing around 150,000 people. Um, and that is what the representative here represents. You know, you can make a lot of trouble in that assembly, in these legislatures, but you do not have politicians doing so because they are committed to their long-term futures. I am frankly very excited to commit political suicide. Because I think that you need to have a collective of people who go in there who are committed to trouble. And some of them are then committed to making that trouble on the inside, playing by some of the rules while being a force of pressure and a source of pressure. And then some of them, this is where I hope that I go in, are to create trouble on the outside and to do things like hold a, like, let's say Dan, let's say Daniel is a, another legislator. And Hold on, let me put my blazer on real quick. Yeah, put that blazer on. There we go. Just blaze. That's the advantage to being in your clothes closet. You can do costume um, changes really easily. So let's say Daniel is another legislator, and Daniel is stonewalling a bill from coming to the floor for even getting a vote. What would typically happen is nothing would happen. Daniel's name would be a co-sponsor on the legislation. His constituents would think that he was a supporter of the bill, but he would have privately told the Speaker of the Assembly, "Don't ever let that shit touch the floor." Because in the assembly, any bill that touches the floor is going to pass. The battle is getting it to the floor. Mm. And it's hard for a lay person to know, you know, if my assembly person is a co-sponsor of this bill, I would assume that they support this bill. But a lot of them are co-sponsors based on the understanding that that bill will never see the light of day. And so what you need is political education that comes through agitation. And so what I want to do is do that agitation, Mm. work with people to you know, create a new set of primary challengers for the worst, for the, for the worst legislators in the assembly to go into those districts. And maybe it's like doing a rally or doing a paid mailer or doing a phone banking operation or a canvassing thing where it's, it's made clear to people that this is what your representative is doing. Mm. Because right now, that missing link between their actions and the accountability that they have to face is allowing them to do whatever it is that they so choose. And we need to create political cost because that's what these people respond to. Mm. Yeah. No, I mean, that's that's generally a bar. I, I concur. Um, but so <laughs> so that, you know, that's this uh, like direct political education through agitation of those who are in power now. I, I want to also do some imagining with, with the frameworks that you have. Um, and it doesn't have to be in the time of your campaign or even in the time that you would be in office. But let, let, let's start with housing and then we can maybe expand from there. Like what would be the relationship to housing and capital that you would want Astoria to have in this future you're trying to create? In the immediate future, I want to pass legislation known as good cause eviction, which would create the framework for universal rent control. It would force a landlord to justify to a judge why they're raising the rent beyond the rate of inflation. Mm. And it would force a landlord to offer a lease renewal to any tenant that pays their rent on time. These are non-controversial, right? <laughs> don't, right. don't sound so wild, <laughs> yeah, but it would be a huge easy, yeah. deal. So that, I think that means the, they can't just evict them because they want to rent, you know, flip that apartment to someone who can exactly. pay Exactly. It's like, oh, I paid my rent every month. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, we're not going to offer you another lease because we want to renovate it and jack up the price. Right. That's the short term. That's called good cause eviction. The long term 
is decommodifying housing. So what that means is that the market is not the determinant of whether or not you can live in a place. Every New Yorker deserves a guarantee to housing. I think that, frankly, anything that's considered to be a necessary good um, for living a dignified life should be decommodified. The typical big three are housing, education, and healthcare. But it also includes things that should include things like childcare, internet, public transportation. I think that we have to be clear as to what the state's responsibilities are, because this country's most recent history is a history of the state leaving more and more for the market to determine. And if this pandemic has shown us anything, it's that the market is not and should never be the sole determinant of the distribution of dignity and that we need to change that. I agree, except for one piece, which is that you keep saying dignity. And I knew you in high school. You were not a dignified motherfucker. Yeah, you know I what it is. On. Young dignity. <laughs> dignity comes in all shapes and sizes, Daniel. That's true. <laughs> it might not have been your dignity, but it was my dignity. I don't know. I saw <laughs> you on the bus. That was not dignified. I, I, I like to bag it up. No dignity. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> all right. Before we get out of here, Dave, Dave anything you want to you wanna throw in there? I love how ready you are. I want, I want to get right b- back into that imagination and, and dreaming bag. So, um, again, you, you are like re-energizing the reality of like the electoral landscape for me right now in a lot of ways. And it feels very similar to some of the folks we talked to in Chicago. Like, you know, we have now six older persons that are socialists or socialist leaning. And it's kind of like a group of 10 or, you know, have DSA connections and everybody's trying to figure it out. And they are saying a lot of these same, like encouraging things of, Oh, okay, here are human beings (laughs) that are, that are not robots that are saying things that make sense about how the world must exist given our current reality. Right. But usually it's in that economic field around like, you know, we need to rethink work and in, in the labor market. We need to rethink and decommodify housing and food. And, and, and I hear that. And that's so encouraging. Uh, but the other part of electoral politics is not just the heavy hand on the economy. It's it's the political structure itself, I believe, is anti-democratic. And I want to hear somebody going into that space kind of like wrestle with this notion that I think representation is in itself like a like oppressive, more or less, or kind of my little witty thing is like, I don't want to be represented. I want to be present. I I want participatory politics. So just hearing your scale of what you're talking about, of all of these districts or however it's broken up, is about 150,000 people. I am saying in the world that I want, I don't think it's possible for any one person, no matter how much I agree with them, to represent 150,000 people. And I don't know how to make that conversation more tangible. And so you're out here doing it. You're out here trying to figure out, you're trying to get that job. And everything that you say leads me to believe you are in alignment with participatory politics. And so, yeah, I just want to throw that monkey wrench in there of the thing that like really frustrated me was hearing you talk about bills get passed to the assembly, right? Like the idea of, because I'm your representative, I'm going to get the, the 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 popularity of proposing something or looking like I'm sponsoring something that people want. And then I have the power to make sure it never happens. Beyond like we need better people that won't do that, we need a structure that does not allow that. Um, what is, what's, what's, what's your little, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that, <laughs> look, I, I think you're totally right that there is a bankruptcy to this belief that any one person can truly be an accurate representative for the entirety of the people of any district. Um, you know, ideas that I've heard to, to rectify that are things like general assemblies, you know, um, trying to basically bring more participatory democracy to life. 
I, you know, here in New York City, the city council has something called participatory budgeting, where you like any resident of a neighborhood votes on where a specific allotted amount of money should go. So it's like $2 million given to a district. You vote like, do you want it to go to air conditioners in this school? Do you want it to go to internet in that place? Do you want it to go to water fountains in this park? And it's like, it's good. But at the same time, it's like, it's like a false sense of scarcity. Like all these things can't also get improved. Right. Um, And it's also like still not that impactful stuff. Like it's important, but it's not like a large scale reimagining. It's kind of like, it's kind of like school government. Yeah, it's kind of like I choose the restaurant and then you pick what you want to order on the menu. <laughs> right, you know? right. and, and also, I own the restaurant. Yeah, I also own the restaurant. And I can tell you what school government is like because I was a failed vice presidential candidate. <laughs> what a campaign, um, though. What a campaign. So I think that, you know, we have to think about that. Like, I have a friend of mine who's running in Southeast Queens. His name is Mufuzul Islam. Were you out there giving out uh, pencils and erasers and other school supplies as a, a mutual aid? <laughs> no, man. To get that that was a very was- top-down campaign, yeah. It was that's, it was a campaign that was anchored short. by a, a rap <laughs> speech uh, to the entirety of the school uh, in which I promised things that I had no ability of making real. I promised fresh fruit <laughs> to be used for the creation of fresh juice for all students. Oh, yeah. You I were big on juice and smoothies. I, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. That was the central. I, you would have won Damon's vote. Damon's a smoothie enthusiast. <laughs> I said three things, right? I said yeah, um, we need to have sure. fresh juice sourced by local supermarkets. I said that we needed to cancel the gym requirement and create credits so that people would not have to go to gym. And I think also incentivize like school support mm-hmm. at games. And then what was the last thing I said? It might have had something to do with detention because I served 44 dean's detentions by the time <laughs> of my graduation. You were, you were a detention abolitionist. Yeah, I believe. You know, you know what it is? <laughs> so, but to, to jump back to, to where you were... Um, yeah, to, to seeing some of the limitations of that participatory budgeting, yeah. what, what would it look like in your ideal world to scale that up or, or reconfigure that? I mean, I have to be honest, I don't have an answer as to exactly how it should be, because I think that this system is flawed and I still struggle to think about what should the alternative be? Like, should it be people's assemblies voting on each and every bill? Should it be basically the taking away of any and all power of a representative, and the distribution of that power amongst people in an assembly I, I don't know if it should be. I mean, I think that that's better than this, but then you also, I mean, I, I really need to flesh this out more in my mind because right now the limitations of my political imagination is that we need to get the best people who are the most representative of the ne- things that need to change, but that still invests in the idea that you can have a representative. Well, and you know, it's just like we kind of started with, it's it's a dialectic, right? So it's both and, like you both need someone who will do better in that role and we need to be rethinking how to make that role obsolete in the same in the same conversation. Also, have you ever tried to like make a decision with more than 12 people? It's a nightmare. It sucks. Right. So <laughs> that is a reality that Damon knows very well. Um, so I want to be mindful of your time because I know it's, it's been a long, it's been a long fast today and you got, what, what are you, what's for, what are you eating out of here? Probably going to be burritos, bro. Okay. Do your thing. Um, real quick, uh, last question is a two-parter. Um, how can Damon and I and then our listeners support the work that you're doing? And second part, what's something you've been doing, if not every day, uh, close to every day, that's helping you be more okay in the midst of this trying time? I got answers for both of them. Number one, need your time and your money. Going up against a 10-year incumbent that has never been primary, that has taken thousands of dollars from real estate developers and continues to take thousands from corporations. We're not taking money from either of those sources or any special interest for that matter. 
And so we're very much reliant on just everyday people. Um, it's why our average donation is $35. It's why we receive more than 3,000 donations. And we need to sustain that. I'm really proud of the fact that we've raised 120 k so far while keeping to that average donation. And we need to keep that going because we're trying to raise another about 40 k in these next four and a half weeks. But this is a very hard time for many people. And it's very tough for a lot of people to be to give any money to anyone right now. And I totally understand that. And so what I also ask people is that if you have time, it would also be immensely helpful and appreciated because we need people to make those phone calls, to send those texts, to write those postcards, to tweet about this campaign, to Instagram about this campaign. You can hit us up at Zahran K. Mamdani and every one of those top three social media platforms. I'm talking about Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'm talking about Zanga. I'm talking about MySpace. (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking about High Five. I'm talking about Friendster. I'm talking about (laughs) Catch Me Outside. (laughs) Um, don't catch me outside. Catch me inside. That's because that's the only place this I am. Is the time, yeah. Do you think we should remix that? Catch me inside. How about hey. that? I, I don't. Could, I don't think we should. She could. <laughs> she could pitch that to a local government. Mm-hmm. If we had more participatory processes. If it was like catch me inside. How about that? All right. Bad Barbie sponsors this shutdown. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad that hopefully it will be the state assembly that has to hear these jokes and not me. That'll be really, really great. Yo, Governor Cuomo, yo, Governor Cuomo. Um, what, <laughs> How about cancel rent? The um, second, okay, second part so of the question. Second part of the question. Eating green tea mochi. Okay. I right. eat at average two a night. And then after that, I have uh, Cocoa Pops. Damn. So, you know, I fast all day eat all night that's what it is <laughs> what out a here. life what a life and prophet muhammad might not have had green tea mochi ice cream and cocoa pops at that time but it is it is an act of faith <laughs> if they were available to him he would have he would have man if, if there was mochi available i feel like he would have been eating mochi you no know? um but yeah you not know cocoa i pops, think though. it kind of speaks to the fact that people are like oh you know how do Muslims break fast? What is Ramadan? <laughs> it's like, oh, ain't none of those people thinking about like, me out here breaking fast, like, eating a cheese stick, some dates, water, and then capping off the night with two Japanese green tea bonbons. <laughs> um, before we get out of here, is there anything else, one, uh, that you want people to know in terms of where to find you and the ways you want to be found? And, and two, just anything that we didn't get to that you want to make sure is included in this conversation? Yes. Uh, you can find me. The easiest way to find me is at my website, Zohran for Assembly. That's Z-O-H-R-A-N-F-O-R-A-S-S-E-M-B-L-Y dot com. And you might be thinking, I live in Chicago. Like, I, I can't donate or I can't volunteer. It's not true. It's not true. There is solidarity across state lines. Everyone has a place in this campaign, as Daniel can attest to, given that I've called him multiple times for this campaign. And the only other thing I would add is that I just want to kind of speak to how much I appreciate you as a person and as, 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 as someone that I've been privileged to keep in my life as a brother through the years from high school to now, because this time is also a time when you kind of reflect on the connections that you have, the relationships that you have, and, and look back on them. And I'm really, really happy to, to look back and still be able to look forward with, with you. And and Dame, I'm sorry I can't include you in that, but you know I'm I'm, I'm hyped to say that in the future. <laughs> yeah, man, I'll take that secondary brotherhood. 
yeah, yeah, no, yeah. yeah. It rubs off. It will second, bounce a little your way. Secondhand brotherhood. Um, it's contagious. I could tell. I could tell that the campaign was really getting into it because you recently shared that you started asking your high school crushes for donations. <laughs> oh my god! How did that go? This is my hard hitting journalism, and then we'll, we'll call it a night. <laughs> Zero dollars thus far. Oh no! I don't even know if I got a response. Oh, so far. That I is... mean, look, I wrote pre-written messages to every single person, and I put them out there, and I was like, "Hey, you know," I didn't acknowledge in any fact that, "Hey, I, I had such a huge crush on you when I was a sophomore," and I didn't say anything. <laughs> That's how you would have gotten that donation. Yeah, I'm like, "Hey, I thought about you on a daily basis." <laughs> 2009, <laughs> 2000, 2007, 2008. I never said anything. Uh, now I'm going to say something, and that's. I'm once again asking you for your financial support. <laughs> Perfect. All right, Z, love you. It's great to see your uh, face. Keep fighting. Love you guys too. When is the election for those who are curious? June 23rd. For sure. Um, we're at Ergo Radio. I'm at Ergo Kiss. I'm Damon underscore F. And we'll be back on the line showcasing the folks reshaping the culture of our city, country, and world for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. Rosie. Daniel. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Look who's here in the studio. It's me. How's it feel to be in here? Well, I was a little nervous uh-huh. earlier, but mm-hmm. now I'm a little more calm. Wonderful. And I'm staring directly <laughs> into your eyes. But we do that all the time anyway. Yeah, but there's not always all this equipment in between us. Well, maybe this will help. Let's play a game. Okay. So I'm thinking maybe like a taboo. Taboo. Like I'll give you some clues and then you'll have to guess what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Does that know, make sense? I know how to play taboo, Daniel. Oh, you'd prefer if I did not taboo-splain? Yes, please. All right, let's get started. Timer on the clock. Ooh. All right, first up. Okay. It's an independent podcast app. Got it. It embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. Mm-hmm. It has no exclusives. Mm-hmm. No premium content. All right. No paywalls. Great. And it's a great podcast app for everyone. Mm-hmm. Do you think you know it? I think I do. Huh. What do you think it is? It sounds like the Overcast app. Beep, 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 beep. Toots got it. Yay. Look at that. I win. Nicely done. How does one get the app? Well, if one were to want to get the app, one could get it for free in the app store. Fantastic. Cool. You going to check it out? I might. Very wonderfully noncommittal. Excellent. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. All right. Let's get out of here. Bye.